This you must ask, laying by the fire in winter, on a soft couch, your belly full, drinking sweet wine, nibbling on chickpeas. Where are you from among men? How old are you, my friend? And how old were you when the mead came? The philosopher Xenophanes. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 47, Anatolia, Revolt in the West. We have now reached a point in our survey of Anatolia where the Ionian Greek interactions would feature in the historical record to a much greater degree. This is due to events providing a pretext and then a backdrop to the invasions the Persians would launch against Greece. From this point on, Greek involvement in Anatolia would continue to increase with the unfolding events over the decades and centuries. Eventually, with Alexander the Great's campaign east, the Hellenistic Age would usher in, seeing Greek culture spread to its furthest extent yet. But let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. We first began by looking at the entire region of Anatolia, starting back to when evidence could be seen of human occupation over one million years ago. We then saw that the human story would continue for the preceding hundreds of thousands of years. The picture during this period is extremely disjointed and just gives us the smallest glimpse into the past, but almost impossible for us to draw out any detail of culture and society. Though once reaching the end of the last Great Ice Age, we would start to get more and larger examples of evidence pointing to human activity. This period is referred to as the Neolithic, and would be where we start to see evidence of sophisticated societies. We focused on two sites in particular, that of Katahoyak and Gobekli Tepe, both highlighting different aspects of society, the former indicating a large domestic settlement, while the other pointed to large-scale religious practices. Though, what they would both also do was question how far back complex societies were forming, from the previous hunter-gatherer way of life. As the Bronze Age approached, we then saw many different groups dot the region where evidence of migrations from other lands had taken place. Eventually this would lead to the formation of one of the first empires in Anatolia, that of the Hittites. They would interact with the smaller kingdoms on their borders, as well as the other empires throughout Asia Minor. The Bronze Age collapse would then affect the entire Mediterranean world, with the Hittites also being consumed in the chaos. This would see the region fragment into a number of smaller kingdoms for the next hundred or so years, before empire would once again return. This then brought us to our next episode on the region, where we focused more towards the western parts of Anatolia. We picked up from the Bronze Age collapse, where these smaller kingdoms and principalities were scattered throughout. The Neo-Assyrians would form the next great empire to exert influence into the regions of Anatolia, though they would be plagued by internal struggles, seeing external powers able to see to their decline. One of these powers was the Medes, who we saw were instrumental along with the Babylonians in opening up a power vacuum in the region. Though a little-known group, the Persians would come to defeat the Medes and incorporate them into their own empire. The Persians would then go from strength to strength, dominating much of Asia Minor and the surrounding regions to form the largest empire yet seen. We then shifted west, where we looked briefly at the Greeks' arrival on the western shores of Anatolia and the cities they would form there, leading to the region of Ionia. They would encounter peoples already settled in the region, where conflicts and agreements would be struck, shaping the alliances and developments occurring. Though we saw there was one kingdom they would have interactions with since the times of their arrival who would end up incorporating the Greek cities of Ionia into their kingdom. This was the kingdom of Lydia, who we look back to their beginnings, seeing their first two dynasties through literary and mythic traditions. Though by the third, the Greek world was now using their new script and information could be recorded and passed down with more detail than before. This third and final Lydian dynasty and its fifth generation of kings would now meet the Persian Empire who had expanded all the way to the borders with Lydia. 
the Lydian Empire would be defeated and its lands now became part of the Persian Empire. Those regions, such as Ionia, would now trade one master for another. This now brings us up to this episode, where we will now focus on the Persians' control into western parts of Anatolia and the effects it had on the Greeks in the region. We will see how Ionia would react and how they would be driven to revolt against Persian control. We will also look at how the Greeks of Ionia prepared to launch their revolt and then how it played out. It will be at this point where we will finish up this episode. I had the intention of the Ionian experience throughout the revolt and the Greco-Persian wars to only take up one episode, but it became apparent that there was too much I wanted to include, so we'll be covering it all over two episodes. This will then see us picking back up after the initial action of the conflict, where the revolt would drag on for some time, but we will also see the Persians respond with force in their counter-operations. With the revolt defeated, we will then turn to Ionia during the Persian operations that would develop into the two invasions of Greece, separated by a decade. And finally, with the Greek victory over the Persians in the wars, we will look at what this meant for the Greeks of Ionia. So let's now get on with the episode by first looking at Persia in their victory over the Lydians. Last episode, we finished up by seeing the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great conquering the Lydians. The date of this campaign to have taken place is often given as 547 BC, though this exact date was used due to Babylonian inscriptions that talk of a campaign crossing the Tigris. But where the targets of the campaign were listed on the tablet, a crack is present, running through them, and it was assumed Lydia was one of the named locations. More modern thinking believes Lydia is not among the regions listed, but thinking still sees the campaign to have taken place sometime in the 540s. Nevertheless, the capital was now in the possession of the Persians, though Lydian lands were vast. Capturing Sardis didn't mean the rest of the region was under Persian control yet. With the Persians now in the region, we see political manoeuvrings taking place with the Greek city-states looking to protect their own interests, or perhaps more accurately, the tyrants themselves looking to protect their interests. Before we get to these negotiations, I want to go into an aspect that supposedly influenced the outcome. As we have seen previously in the series, the Persians were always looking for ways to defeat their enemies indirectly. Well, as the Lydian-Persian campaign was developing, Cyrus had sent envoys to the various Ionian Greek cities, seeing if they could be persuaded to revolt against Lydia. The Ionians would not rebel during the campaign, perhaps being deep within Lydian lands and not having been aware of the Persians previously, taking up arms against the powerful empire they did know seemed like a risky proposition. But now seeing their former master conquered, they sought to keep the same terms they had been on with Croesus. Maybe now, with hindsight, they saw their folly in not revolting and took the initiative by offering submission before it could be demanded. The action the Ionian and Aeolian Greeks took in offering these messages of submission didn't go down well with Cyrus, as Herodotus tells us. They had refused to obey the messages he had sent to them, asking them to rebel. So since he had completed the Lydian affair without their help, he was quite angry they should now be ready and willing to obey him. We then hear that the various Greek cities took steps to fortify their cities and sought aid from elsewhere to hopefully protect themselves from the Persians, for they would inevitably come seeking Greek submission. Though we do hear of Miletus as being the only Greek city to have come to an arrangement with the Persians and able to keep the terms they had been on with Lydia. What these terms were, we are not entirely sure, but it would seem the Persians understood the economic value of this the largest and wealthiest Greek city along the Anatolian coast. As we have seen, the Persians were prepared to give populations concessions when it would benefit their own interests. 
in what would be somewhat of a precursor to events leading up to the Ionian Revolt of 499 BC. We see the other Greek cities sending for help to the Greek mainland, to the city-state with the reputation as being the most powerful, Sparta. The Spartans, though having hearing the pleas of the Ionians and Aeolians, decided against taking any military intervention against Persia, though they would send a herald to Sardis to warn the Persians against inflicting damage on the Greeks of Anatolia. Herodotus then says that Cyrus inquired into who these Hellenes were, why they would send such a command, and how many of them there were. Once these questions were answered, Herodotus then relates the message he was told that Cyrus is meant to have responded to the Spartan herald with. I have never yet feared any men who have a place in the centre of the city set aside for meeting together, swearing false oaths and cheating one another. And if I live long enough, Lacedaemonians will have troubles of their own about which to converse, rather than that of the Ionians. One would think that these words are what the Greeks would have imagined Cyrus to have said, though what was really exchanged in the meeting we're unsure. Also, these insults seem not as relevant to the Spartans compared to the other city-states of Greece. So, we have seen the initial actions the Greeks took with the Persian defeat of the Lydian Empire, though it wasn't only the Greeks that were affected by this monumental event. The Lydians were also grappling with the new reality and responding to it, some working against Persian occupation and others accepting it. Although Persian expansion had seen large areas geographically now a part of the lands controlled, there were still areas or centres that had yet to be subdued. Babylon was one of these areas, along with plans to eventually control Bactria, Scythia and Egypt. With Sardis captured and the Lydian kingdom no more, Cyrus now handed over control to his commanders to continue the subjugation of western parts of Anatolia. Presumably, he was now focused on preparing for a campaign directed at Babylon. This saw Cyrus's subordinates now tasked with mopping up and finishing the job in Lydia. It seems to do this, they would have made use of the already established Lydian administrative system to arrange tribute and cooperation with the various regions. This would have seen a great many in previously privileged positions continue their tasks as before, or risk their place in the social order, or worse. It made sense to use the already established systems, since for the most part, the regions and the people not dealing directly with the unfolding events would have had very little disruption to their lives and would be more willing to just continue as they had done under the Lydians. Inevitably though, there would be areas that would resist the new regime and look to take advantage of the transition. For the Persians, these acts of defiance would be important to stamp out right away, as they could encourage more dissenters. Herodotus tells us of one man who was part of the previous Lydian administrative system that would provide resistance to Persian control. A man named Pactes, who was a Lydian, had been tasked just before Cyrus's departure to collect the entire Lydian treasury from within Sardis and the outlying areas. He was answerable to a Persian named Tabalus, who had been made governor in Sardis, and oversee the administration of the entire region. Pactes did indeed carry out this task, but instead of turning the treasury over in Sardis, he used the money to hire mercenaries and turned to inciting the Lydians to rebel against Persian rule. We aren't specifically told if the Greek cities took part in this revolt, though it seems they most likely did so, as Herodotus does say that Pactes had persuaded the men from the coastal regions to support him. Also, the situation after the failed negotiations would have provided more motivation to resist. Pactes would end up being able to assemble a large enough force to where he would march under Sardis and lay siege to it, with Tabalus now trapped up on the Acropolis of the city. Cyrus, we are told, would learn of the Lydian revolt while on the road back to Abacna, where he would detach a force to be sent to deal with the rebels. 
The Persian force sent back was commanded by Mazaris, who we are told was a Mede, this showing that even though the Medes had been conquered by Cyrus, they still held elevated positions within the Persian Empire. Pacti's mercenary force must not have been too large, or not paid enough, as when they heard of the Persian army approach, they fell back to the coast, to the cities of Ionia. Demands from Azaris then followed Pactes as he travelled between the Greek cities, with large sums of money offered for them to hand him over. He would finally make it to the island of Chios, where the bribe could then be capitalised on, and he would be captured and handed over to the Persians. With the leader of the revolt now captured, Mazaris now took measures to ensure a new one would not arise, by punishing those who had assisted Pactes' scheme. It would seem this campaign of punishing those assisting the attack on Sardis began over in Ionia. He would focus around the plains of the river Meander, which flowed out into the Aegean through southern Ionia. Herodotus specifically mentions the city of Perini being captured and the inhabitants enslaved, as well as Magnesia, suffering a harsh fate. The region looks as though it had provided a lot of support for the uprising, as we are also told the Persian army sent in to restore order was allowed to plunder all they came across. After this initial action in Ionia, a new commander arrived to lead the army as Mazaris died suddenly of an illness. The commander was another Mede, and his name was Epargus. You may remember him from our episode on Persia's rise a while ago. He had been tasked with killing baby Cyrus, but tried to hand the task off, seeing Cyrus survive. Once the Median king, Astyages, learned of Cyrus surviving, Hippargus' son was cooked up and served to him by the king as punishment. He would supposedly stew on this for years, as when Cyrus finally met the Medes in battle, Herodotus tells us that Hippargus, in charge of the Median cavalry, supported Cyrus and went over to the Persians with part of the army, while the rest fled, with only a small portion loyal to Astyages fighting. With Hippargus now in command, operations in Ionia would continue, where we hear of the remainder of the Ionian cities being systematically subjected Earlier we saw that many had prepared themselves with walls and fortifications around their cities, when negotiations didn't go well. It seems Apagus was well aware of these activities, as whenever he encountered a fortified city where the inhabitants resisted and shut themselves inside, he was able to employ earthworks and capture the city, showing the Persians had a good grasp of siegecraft. This was the stage where now look back at our episode of Sicily, the Phaceans left Ionia and established themselves at Corsica, then Sicily, and then southern Italy. We also hear of the Ionian city of Teos, not willing to submit to the Persians and would flee into Thracian lands, though the rest of Ionia would stay and resist, eventually being conquered. The only city not having to engage in conflict was Miletus, who had earlier made an agreement with Cyrus. Reading through Herodotus on this period of history in Ionia, one gets the sense this was an extremely chaotic and dark period for the Greeks there. Although we don't have a huge amount of detail on the events going on, seeing the many cities being systematically taken, inhabitants reduced to slavery, and many preferring to flee their homes and livelihoods to begin fresh in the unknown, speaks volumes of the campaigns directed at the Ionians and Carians. Perhaps to end this period of Persian conquest of Ionia, I will quote the philosopher Xenophanes, who was an Ionian, who witnessed and fled the Persian campaigning, which obviously had an impact on him. This you must ask, laying by a fire in winter, on a soft couch, your belly full, drinking sweet wine, nibbling on chickpeas. Where are you from among men? How old are you, my friend? And how old were you when the mead came?
With the subjugation of all the Ionian and Aeolian Greek cities, they would have been forced into arrangements of tribute, these normally fulfilled through taxes, produce, and men for military service. Although Ionia had been subdued, the campaigning in the west didn't stop. Hipparchus now turned his attention to the regions south along the coast. This campaign would take his army through Caria and down into Lycia. One would imagine there must have been at least a year before this campaign would have been launched, if not more. Time would have been needed to consolidate and arrange the various conquered Greek cities, as we hear that many Ionians and Aeolians would be part of this Persian army heading south, fulfilling their tribute obligations. Much of the same destructive pattern takes place through Carian and Lycian lands, though Herodotus indicates that most of the local Carians and Greeks that lived in the region didn't put up as strong as a fight as they could have. Herodotus talks of the Sindians, who attempted to turn their territory into an island by attempting to cut through an isthmus while the campaigning in Ionia was unfolding. Though we then hear that the difficulties they encountered in this task sought them to seek advice from Delphi, where they were instructed to stop and use this as an excuse for them to surrender without a fight once Apagus' campaigning in Caria began. But we also hear of a number of cases where the inhabitants of cities in Lycia preferred death over Persian subjugation. I will relate one example Herodotus presents. When Hipparchus advanced into the plain of Xanthus, they met him in battle, though greatly outnumbered and fought with much gallantry, at length, however, they were defeated and forced to retire within their walls, whereupon they collected their women, children, slaves and other property and shut them up in the citadel, set fire to it and burnt it to the ground. Then having sworn to do or die, they marched out to meet the enemy and were killed to a man. For the most part, all of Anatolia had now been included into the Persian Empire. Meanwhile, Cyrus had been leading his army against Babylon, which we have already covered in the series, where he was able to bring it into his control. This is also where we get the account of him freeing the Jewish people held in Babylonian captivity in the Bible. We then hear further campaigning would take place further east in Iran and Central Asia, but the chronology and what took place is difficult to know for certain. It's even hard to separate out what areas in these regions were included into the empire during Cyrus's reign and then Darius's reign later. We are told through Herodotus that Cyrus would be killed campaigning in the far northeast, in the lands of the Mesogade led by Queen Tamiris, who were a tribal group in Scythian lands. Again, we related this story back when looking at Cyrus's rise some time ago. Since I have gone into these parts of Persian development previously, I will just remind ourselves of them as we move towards the period of the Ionian Revolt. This would then see the second king of Persia come to the throne around 530 BC. Cambyses was Cyrus's son, but would only rule for a short period, where it appears a conspiracy would take hold after his conquest of Egypt. This whole episode would see a crisis develop in the Persian Empire around succession, with what appears to have possibly been the assassination of Cambyses. Stability would once again be brought back to the empire, with Darius coming to the throne and his campaigning to stamp out revolts that had developed around the empire due to the instability. It's interesting to note that it seems Darius would have the weakest familial link to Cyrus than any other Persian king to rule before Alexander the Great's conquest of Persia nearly 200 years later. It would be during Darius's reign that the Ionian Revolt would develop but let's head back over to the region to get a picture of how the region was functioning under Persian control and what would lead to the revolt breaking out.
Have you been enjoying the series and want to show your support in some way? You can visit www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button. Here you will find many ways you can help the series grow, from subscribing, getting involved in social media, and leaving reviews where you listen to your podcasts. Other options also include assisting with my Amazon wishlist for resources and supporting the series on Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee. The support I have been receiving so far has been fantastic. So a big thank you to everyone who has been helping me grow the series. Darius had come to power in 522 BC, seeing the Greek city-states along the Anatolian coast subject to the Persian Empire for nearly a generation. During the time of their conquest to this point, administrative measures would have been further refined to ensure that the empire was benefiting from their western possessions. We have spoken previously about the satrap system that the Persian Empire operated on, where the empire was broken up into regions with a capital that would provide a central point of administration. For the Greek cities, this capital was located at Sardis, which in turn would then be connected to Susa in the heart of the empire. At Sardis, a governor was installed to oversee the administration of the region, as well as ensure that the tribute from all the cities was being provided. As we saw, this would generally be in the form of taxes, produce and men for the army. The governors of the satraps would for the most part be Persians or Medes, with a direct interest in the Persian Empire, though there would be examples where their own interests would take precedence. The story was different with the various cities around the empire, and especially amongst the Greek Ionians, Aeolians and Carian cities. As we have seen before, the Persians were active in giving their subjected populations a sense of autonomy, by allowing the cities to govern themselves and follow their own cultural practices. This policy would serve the Persian Empire well, for the most part, though at times perceived Persian weakness and pressures from tribute demands would see areas attempt to rebel against Persian control. Within the cities, the Greeks themselves would govern, though this was through the form of a tyrant. As you can probably guess, these tyrants would be in power due to Persian support, with it expected that they would be acting in the empire's interests, and that they would ensure that the tribute demands placed on the city would be met. Though it seems tyrants had appeared in some cities previous to being subjected, most likely due to the same dissatisfaction with the old oligarchic system, like what took place on mainland Greece. Though the tyrants would be in power, and kept in power because of the popular support. Now though, with Persian backing, the people were not as important to maintain their rule, though there is evidence that many of these cities had grown tired of tyrannical rule, and in some cases, Persian control would bring some form of stability, since the tyrants couldn't act entirely for their own interests as much as before. The Persian governor in Sardis would then be the direct connection these tyrants would have with the Persian Empire, ensuring they were governing their cities in the way that wasn't working against the Persian interests or define their obligations. Though as we will see, these Greek tyrants could act against their master given the right circumstances and pressures. This would take place in the city of Miletus, as the 5th century dawned, with then many other cities joining in the movement. It's also important to note that even because they would defy Persian tribute, this didn't necessarily mean they were acting in the interests of the people, but they would not be shy presenting themselves as doing so. The start of the Ionian Revolt is seen to come from the city of Miletus, in all of our sources though it is presented as being a result of individuals and their actions. Though much like the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand, as commonly cited as the reason for the breakout of World War I, conditions and circumstances were building and present that would see revolt or conflict almost inevitable, given the right spark to ignite it. To see this gradual and drawn out process, it is hard to detect it in the ancient sources, since they are more concerned with the consequences of men's actions. 
Though, on the backdrop of these accounts, we can start to get an idea of the wider social picture, which would have included the majority of people whose voices often remain silent in historical accounts. So before we get to the immediate actions that would spark the revolt, we need to first get a general picture of why conditions in the region were at the point they would make a revolt an attractive prospect. We have spoken briefly about how Miletus, since at least as far back as the Bronze Age, was recognised as an important economic centre for trade, heading east and west. This had seen it as an attractive city to control, and those living and working would generally prosper because of it. As time moved on, new powers emerged, and new markets opened up. The city would continue to grow to where, as an independent Greek city-state, it would reach the height of its prosperity, during the early to mid-6th century. With the Lydian conquest of Ionia, the city's wealth and independent action within the trade network would be threatened, though we do see an agreement occurring between Lydia and Miletus. Though one would imagine, for an agreement to occur, Lydia would have to have received benefits that outweighed the prospect of having to mount a campaign, and potentially destroying the wealth the city produced. For the Greeks, the concessions would have had to have been mild enough to view them as a better option than the prospect of war. With the Persian conquest of Lydia, and then Ionia, it is almost certain that harsher conditions would have been imposed on the Greek cities. We saw that Cyrus was displeased at their fence sitting when Persia moved west, and then indignant when the Greeks came looking for special treatment with a Persian victory. A campaign would be fought since the Ionians resisted and participated in the Lydian revolt. Though Miletus was able to separate itself from the rest of the Greeks by securing a similar agreement it had under the Lydian rule, though what this was we are unsure. It seems quite possible that the tyranny of Miletus would have been picked out carefully due to the importance of the city to the Persians. This would see conditions for dissatisfaction more likely amongst the people, whose prosperity would have declined dramatically now that they were having to fulfil the tribute requirements. They were the ones paying the taxes from their commercial activities, providing produce from their crops, and their bodies in times of war. The agreements we hear about seem to be more to benefit the tyrants and their supporters. So, in general terms, we can see prosperity and the standard of living went into a noticeable decline, to where the good times were still in living memory, while the interests of the people were no longer the primary focus of the leaders within the city, which would have seen frustrations and discontent grow within the city-states. I think we can also see this theme of the prosperity of the city present in many of the Ionian cities when under independent rule. Though, like I have said, there appears to have been some dissatisfaction with some of the tyrants before under Persian control. The times of prosperity were still in living memory with the oldest generation still being able to recall the times of old. I think we can see this all wrapped up in the quote I read out earlier by the philosopher Xenophanes. He seems to be recounting the times of prosperity where one was not wanting for much, but with the arrival of the Medes, everything changed, and the Greek cities would not be the same. With a little understanding of the conditions that may have been present on the wider social plane that would help see the revolt develop, let's now turn to the events and people that would be seen to have Ionia rise up in revolt from their Persian masters. So speaking of the tyrants of Miletus, this is where we would see the spark for the Ionian revolt take place. We covered much of the story in the episode we did back on the Ionian Revolt, so this time I will focus more on the elements that we glossed over last time, while just refreshing ourselves on the main flow of events. The first tyrant that would be tied to events around the revolt would be a man named Histiaeus, who became tyrant around 518 BC. Coming to power at this time indicates he would have been placed there or supported by Darius or his governor in Sardis. Though he would not remain in power long in Miletus, 
After having taken part in the Persian campaign through Thrace and into Scythia in 513 BC, this was the episode around the Greeks guarding the bridge constructed over the Danube River that we spoke about in our Thracian episode, where we also saw Miltiades present. We'd also seen that he was awarded territory in Thrace for his good service, but had come under suspicion of the Persian satrap in the region, Megabazos. Herodotus tells us that he was greatly alarmed at his activities, with it seeming that Histiaeus's fortifying of his settlements had been the cause of suspicion. Apparently Megabazos was able to convince Darius of the dangers of leaving him with his own area of control in Thrace, to where he was recalled and acted as an advisor to Darius. We will leave Histiaeus here for now, but he will come back into the story soon. Meanwhile, back in Miletus, with Histiaeus's departing for the campaign in the north, he placed his son-in-law, Aristagoras, in charge, and in effect made him the new tyrant of the city. We have no reason to believe that Aristagoras ruled the city in the people's best interests, but was most likely just continuing the overseeing of Persian interests. Surely he would have had to have been vetted or agreed to by the Persian administrative system, with at least Sardis authorising the appointment. As time passed and Aristagoras became more confident in his position, he began looking to his own self-interest by looking to increase his wealth and influence in the region. In 500 BC, an opportunity would present itself just off the coast of the island of Naxos. A group of rich Naxian nobles who had been exiled came seeking Aristagoras' aid in retaining their position on the island, due to a guest friendship they held with his father-in-law, Histiaeus. Persian control had not exerted far into the Aegean yet, so Aristagoras saw this as a perfect opportunity to further his own interests with Persian help, as he recognised that they would be very interested in the wealthy island of Naxos, with it also being situated midway between Greece and Anatolia. From what Herodotus reports, it seems he assumed the Persians would put him in charge of Naxos, or would be added to the sphere of his influence around Miletus. Aristagoras was able to secure Persian resources to mount a campaign against the island. But as we saw, it would be unsuccessful, and with its failure, the Ionian revolt would be ignited. Aristagoras, in the wake of the campaign, would view his favoured position to be now under threat. He quarrelled with the Persian commander sent with him on the campaign, while he had depleted all of the money and the resources the Persians put towards the expedition. With it seeming there was an expectation, he would repay the debt, presumably with the acquisition of Naxos. However, it appears that the island had been warned of the campaign and had time to prepare their defences. This would see a long costly siege ensure, ultimately resulting in the failure of the campaign. With no new possession for the Persians and the resources wasted, Aristagoras saw himself on borrowed time. The predicament he saw himself in would lead him to see revolt as his only option for saving his position. As Professor Vanessa Gorman puts in her book, Miletus, the Ornament of Ionia, the Ionian revolt took its start from the disappointed personal ambitions of Aristagoras, who was in no way motivated by an ideological opposition to the Persian rule of Ionia. He was inspired by self-preservation in the face of a threat to his power, caused by his own failure. Herodotus also has Histiaeus looking to encourage the revolt, where we saw him in our episode on the Ionia revolt, sending a slave with a tattooed message for revolt. Though, it is hard to take this story at face value, as it comes across as one of those colourful tales Herodotus likes to relate. While the reality of the situation seems to show revolt as being an afterthought due to Aristagoras' failures, and there doesn't appear to have been an opportunity where the two could have colluded, with the two never appearing in the same location throughout the period. As we have spoken about, the Greek tyrants in these Greek Ionian cities had Persian backing 
but now Aristagoras viewed that he had lost his. If he was going to have any chance in maintaining his power, he now had to gain popular support. We hear he was able to get the citizens of Miletus to agree to open rebellion through his action of opening political control and putting aside the tyranny, well for now. He then facilitated the same changes in government to occur in the other Greek cities, also ruled by tyrants. The various cities would respond in different ways to their past leaders. Some would be given leniency, while others would be stoned to death. This perhaps shows that the ordinary people were more inclined to revolt because of the effect the tyrants had on their lives, rather than the hatred towards the Persian Empire. The tyrants would have had a far greater direct impact on the ordinary citizens of their cities. The Persian administration was far removed from their daily lives. Though, revolt fueled by the people's hatred of tyranny was in effect revolt against the Persian Empire, since the tyrannies were serving the Persian interests. Aristagoras would create a board of generals who would help drive Ionian policy in the resistance of Persian rule. Though he knew that if they were going to have any chance at remaining free, they needed a powerful ally that could help them in maintaining their independence. Aristagoras's attention turned west to his cousins across the Aegean, to mainland Greece. The city-state that held the reputation as the strongest during this period was that of Sparta. As we had covered before, he was unable to persuade the Spartan king Cleomenes to sail with an army, with a three-month advance ahead of them. Failing to convince the Spartans, he then made his way to Athens to make the same pleas to the Athenians, where Herodotus says, perhaps cynically, apparently it is easier to oppose on a crowd than upon an individual, for Aristagoras, who had failed to impose on Cleomenes, succeeded with 30,000 Athenians. The Athenians would end up committing 20 ships to aid the Ionians in their revolt, with the city-state of Eritrea also sending an additional five, hardly an overwhelming force. The Eritreans, we are told, were repaying a debt to Miletus, who had assisted them in what is known as the Lalentine War, taking place during the 8th and 7th centuries BC. In the spring of 498 BC, the Athenians and Eritreans arrived on the coast of Ionia at the city of Ephesus, north of Miletus. This Herodotus would highlight as being the cause of the future Persian invasions and where he would write, these ships were the beginnings of evils for both Greeks and barbarians. Here they linked up with the Ionian forces, where they would then march northwest to Sardis. Though Aristagoras would remain back in Miletus, with other Milesians in command, his brother being one. The advance on Sardis would be the first major action of the revolt that we are aware of and seems to have been aimed at being a surprise attack to catch the Persians off guard. The Greeks followed the course of the Castor River before then crossing the Tomolus mountain range, where they then descended into Sardis. The Greek force would initially succeed in its surprise, but they were able to capture the city, though this is where their successes would end. A fire would break out in the lower city, spreading very quickly through the buildings of heavy reed construction. Further to this, the garrison that had been present in the city managed to fortify themselves on the Acropolis with the governor of the region, Artaphernes. The Greeks were unable to breach the defences and with the standoff developing, it was a matter of time before the Persian forces from surrounding areas would arrive. The Greek forces had then decided to pull out of the city and retrace their steps back towards Ephesus. Unfortunately for them, the Persians had managed to arrange a pursuing force that appears to have been made up of light and mounted units they would catch up with the Greeks just outside of Ephesus, forcing them to turn and fight. The Greeks would be soundly defeated and scattered to the various cities and towns. The Athenians and Eritreans would return back to their ships and sail back to the Greek mainland, not to take any more part in the revolt.
The attack on Sardis was the opening engagement of the Ionian Revolt, though the revolt would continue for the next few years. Although a Persian force was able to defeat the Greeks outside of Ephesus, they appear not to be present in numbers to be able to deal with the various revolting cities throughout the coast just yet. Operations would continue throughout Western Anatolia, but with time, more and more Persian forces would be mobilised to deal with the revolt, where the Greeks in the region would begin to find themselves on the back foot. Next episode, yes there's going to be another one, my goal was to present the Ionian activities during the revolt and the Greco-Persian War period in a way I had not covered when looking at the Greek and Persian War earlier in the series. Therefore, next episode will be turning to the continued operations and the counter-operations that the Persians conducted in Ionia and the surrounding regions. Then we will turn to look at the ride the Ionian Greeks were forced to take with the Persian campaigns that would be directed at Greece. Then we will see out the episode and our look at the Greek periphery in Anatolia by looking at the situation along the coast in the wake of the Greek victory. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution has truly helped me grow the series. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over at the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time for episode 48, Anatolia, Continuing Conflict. <laughs>